Let's open our Bibles this morning to 1 Samuel chapter 28. 1 Samuel chapter 28. Man, what a blessing to be in the house of the Lord with you. Amen. Aren't you glad the Lord meets with us? The Bible tells us He inhabits the praise of His people. And I, it's just been my experience, man, when folks start bragging on the Lord, it seems like hearts get moved, and I'm thankful for that this morning. 1 Samuel chapter number 28. And uh, this is, it might be a familiar passage to you, it might be an unfamiliar passage to you. It is undoubtedly a unique passage in the Word of God. And uh, the, I'll go ahead and tell you that, that I hope there's some things that I share with you that you've not heard before this morning out of the Word of God. Uh, but probably your, your biggest questions, if you're like most people, your biggest questions out of 1 Samuel 28, I'm not going to answer today. And the reason I say that is because 1 Samuel chapter 28 details for us Saul going to the witch at Endor. And there's a lot of things that I, I just like you, I wish I had the answer to, uh, but that I do not have the answer to. But I believe there is a truth and there is a lesson for us here in the Word of God that if we'll open our hearts to, I believe God can speak to us about it this morning. 1 Samuel chapter number 28, and I'd like to begin reading in verse number 3. 1 Samuel chapter 28, verse number 3. The Word of God says, now Samuel was dead. Samuel, of course, was the prophet of Israel. Samuel was dead, and all Israel had lamented him and buried him in Ramah, even in his own city. And Saul had put away those that had familiar spirits and the wizards out of the land. And the Philistines gathered themselves together and came and pitched in Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel together, and they pitched in Gilboa. And when Saul saw the host of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart greatly trembled. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord answered him not, neither by dreams, nor by Urim, nor by prophets. Then said Saul unto his servants, Seek me a woman that hath a familiar spirit, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, there, Behold, there is a woman that hath a familiar spirit at Endor. And Saul disguised himself and put on other raiment. And he went, and two men with him, and they came to the woman by night. And he said, I pray thee, Divine unto me by the familiar spirit, and bring me him up whom I shall name unto thee. And the woman said unto him, Behold, thou knowest what Saul hath done, how he hath cut off those that have familiar spirits and the wizards out of the land. Wherefore then layest thou a snare for my life to cause me to die? And Saul sware to her by the Lord, saying, As the Lord liveth, there shall no punishment happen to thee for this thing. Then said the woman, Whom shall I bring up unto thee? And he said, Bring me up Samuel. And when the woman saw Samuel, she cried with a loud voice. The woman spake to Saul, saying, Why hast thou deceived me? For thou art Saul. And the king said unto her, Be not afraid, for what sawest thou? And the woman said unto Saul, I saw gods ascending out of the earth. And he said unto her, What form is he of? And she said, An old man cometh up, and he is covered with a mantle. And Saul perceived that it was Samuel, and he stooped with his face to the ground and bowed himself. And Samuel said to Saul, Why hast thou disquieted me to bring me up? And Saul answered, I am sore distressed, for the Philistines make war against me, and God is departed from me, and answereth me no more, neither by prophets nor by dreams. Therefore I have called thee, that thou mayest make known unto me what I shall do. Then said Samuel, Wherefore then dost thou ask of me, saying, The Lord has departed from thee, and has become thine enemy? And the Lord hath done to him as he spake by me, for the Lord hath rent the kingdom out of thine hand and given it to thy neighbor, even to David. Because thou obeyest not the voice of the Lord, nor executest his fierce wrath upon Amalek, therefore hath the Lord done this thing unto thee this day. 
Moreover, the Lord will also deliver Israel with thee into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow shalt thou and thy sons be with me. The Lord also shall deliver the host of Israel into the hand of the Philistines. Then Saul fell straightway all along the earth and was sore afraid because of the words of Samuel. There was no strength in him for he had eaten no bread all the day nor all the night. We'll stop there and pray. Father, we love you this morning. What a blessing to be in your house, Lord, to hear the testimonies of the goodness of your grace. Lord, I, 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 I've known you've been being good to me. I guess I shouldn't be surprised you've been being good to others too, Lord. You're faithful. You're good in all of our lives. And I just pray that you'd help us now in these next few moments to train our hearts and minds upon you to listen and hear your word, Lord, not just for it to be noise that is thrown at us, but Lord, let it be a message that pierces our hearts and transforms us and deals with us readily where we're at that you might receive the glory. Now, Lord, I know that you're able to do this. I know your word is fit to do this, Lord. The only question is if we'll let you do it. Lord, I pray that we would this morning, that we might walk away from here more in the image of Christ and with our life more surrendered to you. Lord, we love you and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as I already said, when you read through 1 Samuel 28, there are a a hundred questions that probably are flooding through your mind. You're wondering things like, is this woman really a witch? Does she have power as we would think of uh, with uh, dark forces? And really, to be honest, I I don't know that I could say one way or the other whether she does. She certainly seemed to believe that she did, although I think there's some things in this passage that betray the fact that she really didn't have the experience that she thought she did. Uh, you're probably wondering how it was that she knew who Saul was and, and, and that this disclosed Saul to her. I can't really answer that for you. You're probably wondering things like, what did it look like to see gods coming up out of the earth? And we know there's only one God. The Bible teaches us that clearly. What did she mean when she said that? What did it look like? There's probably a hundred questions you have about this passage. And I hate to tell you, probably most of those I will not be able to answer. But I do find when I study this passage, that there is a practical truth and a practical lesson that's for your life and mine. Now let me say this first off this morning. Speaking of the matter of witchcraft, the Bible makes no uncertain terms or presentation about the danger and evil and destructiveness of the occult. And the Bible says we ought to have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. That it's better not even to speak of those things which are done to them in secret. It's a shame even to speak of those things. And and I don't know if it needs to be said. Probably it does. Even in an independent Baptist church, it probably needs to be said that we need to stay away from the allurement and the, the sensuality of darkness and of the devil's ways. But when I read 1 Samuel 28, I'm really struck by this event in Saul's life and its connection to something that happens earlier in Saul's life. If you were to study the history of Saul, the king of Israel, and we'll not take the time to detail all of it, but you would find that he uh, appeared at a time in Israel's history when they were tired of God's uh, authority and governance. They clamored for a king. They begged God for a king. And so God gives them Saul. Saul is a man that is not particularly spiritually minded. He is not a particularly righteous man or godly man. Uh, But for the world's appearance, he seems to be a good fit for a king. He was taller than everybody else. He was handsomer than everybody else. He was smarter. He was a better fighter than everybody else. And so the Bible tells us that God permits Israel to choose Saul to be king over them. Well, for about a year or two, Saul does a pretty good job. You know, the flesh can pretend to be righteous for a little while. I mean, you, listen, there's a lot of folks, I mean, you, you can go a few hundred feet in the flesh 
before it tells on you. And Saul, he, he served for a year or two uh, as king reigned and, and everything went pretty well. But the Bible tells us that in 1 Samuel 15, God gave commandment to Saul that he was to go and destroy the Amalekites. The Amalekites were one of the perpetual enemies of God's people. And uh, Saul goes and God gives him victory that day in the battle. But Saul makes a choice that day. God had told Saul that he was to destroy everything that the Amalekites had. He was to kill all of their people. He was to slay all of their livestock, destroy all of everything that they had. It was unclean in the eyes of God. God wanted it destroyed and eradicated. Uh, This is mentioned in our text. It's hearkened back to Saul's mind that God had given him that commandment, but that Saul chose to disobey the Lord and to do instead what he preferred. Well, the Bible makes this statement. When Samuel the prophet appears on the scene after the battle with Amalek, and he hears the bleeding of the sheep, he hears the noise of the livestock, he hears and sees people partaking in the spoils of war, he goes to Saul and asks him why he has disobeyed God. And Saul's reply is this. He said, I took the best of everything and gave it to God. Now that sounded real spiritual. The only problem was, that's not what God asked for. God didn't say, I want the best of the worst. He said, I want the worst destroyed, and I want only that which is clean in my sight. And whenever Saul replies in this way, Samuel says this to him in 1 Samuel 15, verse 22. Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. You see, it don't matter how much we give to the Lord. If we're living in sin, God ain't impressed with it. And that's true of our treasures and our time and our talents. We may give all those things to God and we should give those things to God, but understand that that don't cancel out disobedience to the Lord. He says to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. Now listen to what he says in verse 23. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Now listen, I'm a simple person. I'm not an educated man. I'm not a smart man. Uh, I've got to the place in life I don't even, other than on Sundays, I don't even wear shoes that tie. Somebody say amen to that. I've not moved to the Velcro yet. I'm just in the slip-on phase. I'm not a smart man, and I do not claim to be. But I do believe this, that if God draws a line between rebellion in the life of Saul and witchcraft in the life of Saul, I believe it's appropriate that we observe that line and consider it as well. Did you know when you study through the life of Saul, there's not one single instance other than our text of witchcraft? We don't have another instance of him going to what the Bible calls a woman with a familiar spirit. That means a sorcerer or a fortune teller, someone that dabbles in the occult and engages in the occult. In fact, the Bible tells us that prior to this moment, Saul had put all those people out of the land. He had declared them outlaw and he had uh, put them to death and driven them from the land. There is not, Brother Charlie, another single instance of witchcraft in the life of Saul. He goes on the very next day to battle and is slain there. And God gives us only one occasion when He dabbles in witchcraft. Now, could I say this to you this morning? Here's the perspective I want us to think about this passage with. If rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and your King James Bible says it is, then I don't think it would be inappropriate, Brother Ken, to say this. I guess then that witchcraft is as the sin of rebellion. You say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, I'm saying if God says A equals B, then I don't think it's wrong to say B equals A. 
And if we can look at rebellion in the life of Saul in 1 Samuel 15 and say, this is what witchcraft looks like, then I think we can equally go to 1 Samuel 28, look at witchcraft in the life of Saul and say, this is what rebellion looks like. I want to preach to you on this thought this morning. Witchcraft is as the sin of rebellion. And I want you to think about this with me. When reading this passage, what do we learn about rebellion in the life of a believer? Now, uh, you, and somebody's going to say, well, preacher, Paul or Saul, he wasn't a believer. I, you're you're going to have to argue with Samuel about that. Samuel said, tomorrow thou and thy sons will be with me. If you, if you believe that, that's fine. You can believe something different. That's okay. We probably believe lots of things different. But I, I would say this, that whether or not Saul was a, a man that had righteousness imputed unto him in the Old Testament, whether or not he was a believer sincerely in God, I think there's no question that he reminds us of what a believer does when they get into rebellion in their life. What can we say about rebellion just offhand? This isn't even the message. But what does rebellion do to us? Notice the first three verses. We're told three statements about Saul's life. It says in uh, verse number three, Now Samuel was dead, and all Israel had lamented him and buried him in Ramah, even in his own city. And Saul had put away those that had familiar spirits and the wizards out of the land. Let me say number one, listen, when we live in rebellion, uh, we don't encounter the voice of God. I want to be careful how I say this. I'm not saying God don't speak. I'm just saying we won't listen. The Bible says that Samuel, who was the voice of God for their generation, was dead. And Samuel, Saul, excuse me, could not go to God and hear the voice of God. When we, uh, You know what I found? Listen, God continues to speak, but all of a sudden our ears get heavy when we start living in rebellion. Uh, any of y'all ever suffered from what they call that selective hearing? I know you probably wouldn't admit it, but some of y'all's wives would tell on you and say, oh yeah, you pray for my husband, he's battling it. Where they only hear what they want to hear. Well, the truth is, that's a quality of the human condition. And when we live in rebellion, we do God that way. We only hear what we want to hear. It's amazing that two people can sit under the same preaching and hear different things. Now, listen carefully to me this morning. I know that part of that is because the Holy Spirit applies things to our heart and to our life. And there's been times that God has rung my bell in a message and it wasn't even what the preacher was preaching on. But I'm saying it's amazing that we could sit and listen to the same word preached, the same word read, the same word spoken and testified of and somehow miss the very truth of it. Why is that? Well, because rebellion causes us to not encounter the voice of God. Look at verse number 4. The Bible says this, The Philistines gathered themselves together and came and pitched in Shunem. Now the Philistines are the enemy of God's people. And Saul gathered all Israel together, and they pitched in Gilboa. And when Saul saw the host of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart greatly trembled. We could say this, that rebellion, when we're rebellious, we don't encounter the voice of God. But number two, we don't experience the victory of God. You know, God had whooped the Philistines time and 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 time again on behalf of the Israelites. But now in this moment when the voice of the prophet is silent, when he can't get a word from God, when he doesn't know what to do and he's unwilling to do what it takes to get right with God, all of a sudden he begins to tremble in fear. Hey, listen, the victory that God gets, the Bible says our faith is the victory that overcometh the world. Victory don't always look like winning from the outside. But victory is the fact that God has made an impermeable condition in us. He has insulated us from what the world can do to us through our faith in Him. What happens when we're not walking with God? Our faith falters. We don't experience the victory of God. Look at verse number 6. And i got a lot to say about verse number 6. 
But it says this, when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord answered him not, neither by dreams nor by Urim. Now the Bible talks about a means through which they would divine the will of God called Urim and Tumim in the Old Testament. There's a lot of questions about what that might have been and what that might have looked like, but it was a way that they would learn and understand the will of God. Not exactly casting lots, but that there were ways that they would look for signs and things to understand God's mind about something. And the Bible says the Lord answered him not neither by dreams nor by Urim nor by prophets. I would say this, we don't enjoy visiting with God when we get in rebellion. He goes to the Lord, but he can't get a word from God. He goes to worship, but he can't worship. By the way, part of the reason the Urim was not here was because Abiathar the priest had already been run off by Saul uh, so that uh, he could go and join league with David, who was the enemy of Saul. In other words, he wanted to enjoy it, but he had done run off anybody that would tell him the truth. Uh, can I tell you this? Listen, if we want to get help in the house of God, we can't, we can't get all bowed up every time somebody tells us the truth. If we want, listen, if we want to hear from God, we gotta be willing to listen to those that will tell us uncomfortable truths from the Word of God. So we don't encounter the voice of God or experience the victory of God. We don't enjoy visiting with God. Maybe we could look at this a different way. Rebellion in the life of the believer. You know what it does? Let me say this. Number one, it robs us of the people of God. The Bible says Samuel was dead. Now, God didn't kill Samuel because of Saul's disobedience, but I find it interesting that at a time of rebellion in his life, he looks around for those people that would tell him the truth and tell him right, and he don't find any of them there. You know what I've found in my life? I don't know if this is true of yours, but when I get in sin, there are certain people I have to avoid. Because if I get around them, they're going to let me know that I'm living wrong. And if I'm going to live in rebellion, i got to stay away from those people. I mean, I don't know if this ever happened to you. There might be people in your life that all of a sudden, man, they just start ducking you and, and you rack your brain. They don't owe you money. They ain't done nothing to you. But just all of a sudden, they're just gone. And I say oftentimes the reason for that is because it makes them uncomfortable to be around somebody that's living for God when they're not living for God. I'd say rebellion, it robs us of the people of God. Not only that, it robs us of God's power as well. We cannot face the battles that we otherwise could face because we need faith and boldness to face those things. And when we're living in disobedience to God, we have no boldness, we have no confidence. The Bible says, listen, brethren, if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. But you know why that has power over us? Because if we've been living in rebellion, we agree with our heart when it condemns us. And we say, well, why should God give me victory? I've been living in sin. And it robs us of God's power. Let me say number three, it robs us of God's presence. When he goes into the house of God and wants to hear from God, God is silent to him. You know why? Because, And I don't want to get ahead of my message here, but God had already spoken to Saul. And Saul had not done what God had asked. And the reason he was coming back to God is he wanted God to ignore his disobedience, help him play the hypocrite, and give him instruction in spite and different than the instruction that God had already given. You know, when we live in rebellion, you say, why would people be rebellious and still go to church? Oftentimes they're hoping God will ignore their rebellion and give them different direction in their life. Listen, I, your, your children have probably done this. Do they ever come up and ask you a question and you gave them an answer and two seconds later they came up and asked you the same question? And you know, maybe the first time they just didn't hear you, but then the third time they come up and you think, well, maybe, maybe they're dumb. Maybe I've got a dumb child. I don't know. And they come up to you a fourth time and a fifth. You know what they're doing? They're hoping that when they come and ask you, you're going to say something different. They're hoping to wear you down and change your mind and get you to say something different. I would say this, that that illustration is given both in a positive and a negative light in the Word of God. But as it regards the matter of God's will for our life, when God tells us to do something, 
we are to do it. And we can go back to God a thousand times and we can shout and we can rejoice and we can go to church and we can weep and we can sing and we can testify and we can do all those things. But if we're still living in disobedience, don't expect to hear God speak on anything else until we reply to what He's already said. But when I read this, I think there's maybe another way we could think about it. We could talk about what rebellion does to us. We don't encounter the voice of God or experience the victory of God or enjoy visiting with God. It robs us of God's people, of God's power, of God's presence. But what could we say that these verses teach us about this moment in Saul's life? You see, what we're really looking at is why did Saul rebel against God? Why is this a moment of rebellion in his life? And I see three things that contribute to it. Number one, I would say this, there was no seer in his life. We could say it this way, the prophet was dead. In other words, when we refuse to hear the Word of God, we are exhibiting a spirit and attitude of rebellion and disobedience. This had begun many years before, actually in chapter 15, what we referenced before. The Bible says this in verse number 35, that Samuel came no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul, and the Lord repented that he had made Saul king over Israel. Isn't it interesting that the last time he hears the voice of God through Samuel is the last time that he tells God no. He says, no, God, I'm not going to bend. I'm not going to obey. I'm not going to give these things back. I'm not going to slay these Amalekites. It's what I want, and I'm going to do things my way. And that's the very last time that he ever hears the voice of God through Samuel. You know, rebellion begins in our life when God commands us, when He instructs us, and we simply choose our way above His way. In fact, let me say this. We could define rebellion as simply as saying it's choosing our way above God's way. We think of rebellion in the sense of malice and spite and obnoxiousness, but very often, listen, people can be rebellious with a sweet attitude. I mean, hey, listen, you you ever known people that that, what they call kill you with kindness? You know, sometimes we do God that way. There's a modern political term for it. It's called gaslighting. And and, and what is gaslighting, right? It's doing something crazy and then treating them like they're crazy for noticing that it's crazy. Sometimes we do God that way. God has given us a whole Bible full of truth. Then we'll walk in disobedience to that truth. Then God will chasten us and we'll look up and say, God, why are you being so harsh to me? Why are you being so uh, so unreasonable with me? And we will try to feign politeness with God. Here's the truth of the matter. Rebellion is choosing our way above God's way. No matter what disposition or mask we wear to do it, it's choosing our way above God's way. It was a time when there was no seer. The prophet was dead. Number two, it was a time when there was no safety. The Bible says that the Philistines had gathered around them. Let me say this. We may live in rebellion for a season, but sooner or later we're going to need God. Sooner or later, problems will arise. Trouble will come. Our heart will tremble. And we're going to need God. We can claim we don't need Him. But sooner or later, there's going to be a decision to be made. We're going to need God's wisdom. Sooner or later, there's going to be a battle arise and we're going to need God's help. Sooner or later, calamity will befall us and we're going to need God's comfort. Sooner or later, we're going to need God. Then notice this. When he has a choice to go to God, verse number 6 says something interesting. When Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord answered him not, neither by dreams nor by Urim nor by prophets. In other words, he tried every way to get an answer from God. If I'm just a casual observer of God's Word, I sort of start to get a bad impression of God at this point. I mean, I'm thinking, hey, here's Saul, and he's he's disobeyed, but, but now he's coming to God, and he's seeking God, and he wants God's help. 
Why won't God help him? But you know the Word of God gives us an answer about that. Listen to what the book of 1 Chronicles says about this moment in Saul's life. Verse number 13 of chapter 10, it says, So Saul died for his transgression which he committed against the Lord, even against the Word of the Lord, which he kept not. And also for asking counsel of one that had a familiar spirit to inquire of it. So we know this is the moment that we're talking about in 1 Chronicles 10. Listen to what it says in verse 14. He, uh, in verse 13, he asked counsel of one that had a familiar uh, spirit to inquire of it. Verse 14 says, and inquired not of the Lord. You say, preacher, how do we reconcile those two passages in the Word of God? Well, very simply, he was asking on the outside, but he wasn't asking on the inside. I'd say it this way. It was a time in his life when there was no seer, no prophet. There was no safety. The enemy was gathered. But I would say this. It was a time when there was no sincerity. And because there was no sincerity, the Lord was silent. He said, I'm going to go down to church and pray and get an answer from God. But here's the truth. He didn't want God's opinion. There's a lot of us talk about wanting to know the will of God. And we'll say that. But we've done told God what is acceptable is His will and what is not. And because of that, God says, "Uh -uh, I'm not going to play those games. I'm not going to help you be a hypocrite. Until you come to me and really want to know what I want, I'm sorry. I will not play your games. Why would God let him defile and defame the house of God by playing along his charade of rebelliousness when he had no desire to hear what God really wanted? By the way, you know why God didn't speak? Because Saul already knew what God wanted. Notice how closely 1 Chronicles 10 ties those two events that were separated, by the way, by years. But God said, this is why Saul died. Because he disobeyed me regarding the Amalekites and he did not seek me, but he went to a woman with a familiar spirit. God speaks of them in the same breath. You know why? Because they were connected. You know why? Because God says, I'm looking back at the logbook of when I've spoken to Saul. And I see here when I spoke to him when he became king. I see him here when I spoke to him about leading him into battle against enemies. I see here when I spoke to him about the Amalekites. Well, now wait a minute. There's a big gap here. And the next time that he comes seeking me is when he goes to the one with the familiar spirit. God's just run along the terms of his relationship with Saul. And he's saying this, I already spoke to you, Saul. I already told you what to do. Until you do the thing you know is right, don't come back and ask for something different. I would say this, that it was a moment when there was no sincerity in his life. And you may feign sincerity, and I may feign sincerity, but God knows the heart. We may go down, we may pray at an altar, we may get up and ask folks to pray for us and help us. And you say, preacher, is that bad? No, that's the right thing to do as long as we're doing it on the inside as well as on the outside. You say, preacher, who will know the difference? God will know the difference. God will know the difference. So what do we learn about rebellion in his life? Well, notice three thoughts with me and I'll be done this morning. I know, I know what time it is better than you do. Amen. So. Don't get nervous. Maybe not. Maybe my clock's wrong. But it, uh, notice number one with me, the steps of the rebellious. What does a man do when he enters into rebellion in his life? And to be fair, Saul had been rebellious for many years. But this moment in his life is defined as an act of rebellion against God. What does he do? Well, notice number one, his stubborn decision. Now, he goes to the Lord and he prays and he hears nothing. He goes to God. And he offers sacrifices and he hears nothing. He goes and, and he asks prophets that he finds to get him a word from God and he hears nothing. And Saul now has a decision to make. He knows what he's done wrong. He knows what it will take to get right. 
And he now has the opportunity to get his heart and life right. What does he decide to do? Verse 7, Then said Saul unto his servants, Seek me a woman that hath a familiar spirit that I may go to her and inquire of her. In other words, here's what he said. I know how to get right, but I don't want to do this God's way. I'm going to find the right decision and the right way for my life my own way. I'm going to do a shortcut around God, and I'm going to get the same result God would have given me, but I'll do it without having to bend my knee to God. Isn't it amazing? If all he needs is wisdom, and he knows God has wisdom, why would he not merely confess his iniquity to God, his disobedience to God, and ask God's forgiveness? God's sitting there begging him, Saul, I don't want to destroy you. I don't want to remove you. I don't want to lay you low in life. I want to help you. But he was unwilling to. You know why? Because he was unwilling to bend the knee before God. Can I tell you, listen, one of these days, we're all going to bend the knee before God. So we'd be far better off to go ahead and bend the knee before Him. Every moment of rebellion in your life and mine begins with a decision. A decision that we make. It may seem simple. It may seem slight. It may seem harmless. But it is a decision when God said, this is what I desire for you. It could be about any number of things in our life. And we say, Lord, I know that's what you want but it's not what I want. And I'm going to choose what I want above what you want. You know, by the way, 1 Samuel 15 also says stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. You know why? Because all these things are really hovering around the same sin. It's got to do with enthroning yourself above God and saying, I'm going to do my thing my way and God doesn't get a say in it. I would say this, we see the, the, the his stubborn decision, but then notice verse number 8. I thought this was amazing. Verse number 8 says this, Saul disguised himself and put on other raiment. And he went and two men with him. Let me pause there. This isn't my message. But let me just say, when we get in rebellion, we take other people with us. We take other people with us. You may say it only affects me. I mean, most people that, that let rebellion in their heart, they'll say something like this. They'll say, well, it's my life and my decisions. Yeah, but what about all those other people that your decisions affect? What about those kids? What about those grandkids? What about what about that spouse? Hey, oh, what about that mama or that daddy? Uh, what about your loved ones? Hey, they have a stake in your life as well. You can say it don't affect me or it only affects me, but it affects more than just you. Saul, he took more with him. He takes these two men with him. And the Bible says they came to the woman by night. That's interesting. By night. And he said, I pray thee, divine unto me by the familiar spirit and bring me up whom I shall name unto thee. Let me say this. We see his stubborn decision, but then we see his superficial disguise. You could probably use the word shameful there too. This fascinates me. I told you there's questions I can't answer. And one of the questions I can't answer is why Saul did this. I know why he did it, but doesn't it seem so unnecessary? When the woman finds out who he is, she still does what he tells her to do. In fact, I'd just posit to you this morning that if he had showed up, knocked on the door, said, King Saul here, uh, divine me up, Samuel, or I'll take your head off, she'd have said, yes, sir. Who was he hiding from when he put that disguise on? I mean, who was he hiding from? His men knew who he was. The Bible says he went by night. Went by night. My parents raised me to, to believe nothing good happened after 10 o'clock at night. Why did he go by night? He didn't want to be seen. Why did he put on disguise? He didn't want to be seen. Who was he really hiding from? He couldn't hide who he was from this woman. You know who he was hiding from? He was hiding from his own conscience and hiding from God. I would say this, it is a superficial disguise, but it is a shameful. He's doing it because he is ashamed. He knows he's wrong and doesn't want to face up to it. 
Now you'd say, well, preacher, when people get rebellious, they get all messed up and they go out and, and get all messed up in the world and do all kinds of wickedness. Yes, yeah, sometimes. And sometimes they scoot up real close to the house of God too. It's a way of putting a disguise on. Sometimes they don't quit reading their Bible when they get rebellious. Sometimes they start reading. Sometimes they don't quit praying. They already ain't been praying. But sometimes they'll start to pray, sanctify whatever their decision is. Why do they do that? Why do they do that? You know why they do that? Because even they know what they're doing is wrong. Uh, listen, I'm, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to cast a net so wide that no one can escape it. I'm not saying everybody that, that, that comes to the house of God is, is wrong in doing it. Hey, if I believe that, you and I both wouldn't be here today. But what I am saying is this, that when a person lives in rebellion, they will often seek to sanctify that rebellion by dressing it in the garbs of spirituality. Says, I gotta put a, I gotta put a mask on. He disguises himself because he doesn't want anyone seeing. And really, it's that he doesn't want to look in the mirror and see himself for what he knows he is. He ain't fooling nobody. God knows who he is. I see he disguised himself. But then notice his sinful delusion, verse 9. The woman said unto him, Behold, thou knowest what Saul hath done, how he hath cut off those that have familiar spirits and wizards out of the land. Wherefore then layest thou a snare for my life to cause me to die? So he's running into a problem, right? This woman says, sorry, you're going to have to go find you another. Call Miss Cleo. I can't help you. Because Saul has already decided that anybody that commits this is going to die. Now, here's what Saul could have done. And in fact, eventually what he did do, because he was exposed as being King Saul, but here's what he could have done. He could have pulled the mask off and said, listen, I know you're scared, but I am King Saul. And I'm telling you that it's like these lockdown mandates. You know, it's coming out every time you turn around. That the very people that crafted them, are breaking them all the time. You know, sorry, i got to get my herd in. You know? <laughs> and, and, and he could have pulled the mask off and said, yeah, listen, I know we've made that rule for everyone else, but I'm King Saul, so I don't have to keep that rule, and you can just simply, uh, you know, you, you can go ahead and bring up Samuel. But he doesn't. He goes to her, and then he lies to her. He says in verse number 10, And Saul swear to her by the Lord, saying, As the Lord liveth. That's strong language. That's powerful. You're invoking the name of God. As the Lord liveth, there shall no punishment happen to thee for this thing. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't say, I swear to thee as the Lord liveth, Saul will not find out. He doesn't say, I swear to thee as the Lord liveth, Saul will not kill thee. He says, there shall no punishment happen unto thee. You know the problem with that statement? He could speak for him, but he couldn't speak for God. You see, his whole perspective is temporally uh, addressed here. He says, well, there's not going to be any consequences. I would say this, we notice his stubborn decision and his superficial disguise, but we notice his sinful delusion. He said, I'm going to get away with it, and you're going to get away with it, and we're all going to get away with it, and there won't be any punishment. Now, you and I sit here, and, and we almost, not in an irreverent way, but we laugh at that. We think, how foolish that is. Of course they're not going to get away with it. But listen, it's amazing the lengths to which the rebellious heart will suspend disbelief in order to nurture our rebellion. I mean, listen, we've watched other people do this. We've watched other people get out and sin and their life a wreck and their marriage fall apart and their kids go to hell and the devil. And we've seen it happen to them, but we say it won't happen to me. Why? Why won't it happen to me? Why won't it happen to you? You think you're better than those people? You think, I, do I think I'm better than them? No. If it happened to them, it can happen to me. It can happen to you. But we deceive ourselves into believing there'll be no consequences. And let, listen, here's what we do. 
The other people we drag into our sin, we deceive them too. We deceive them too. Because listen, we're so self-centered, we can't just wreck our own life. we got to drag somebody else in and wreck their life too. And so we pull them in and say there's no consequences for this. I notice the steps of his rebellion, but then notice the surprise to the rebellious. Things do not go as Saul anticipates. Surprise, surprise. And I would say this, the rebellion in our heart deceives us and have certain ideas about how we think things are going to turn out. We think one of these days God's going to admit He was wrong and we were right and apologize for trying to wreck our life and tell us what to do. But I'm sorry, friend, that ain't how it works. We think one of these days everybody's going to see that I was right after all and that I can live any old way that I want and that that's fine. But that's not how it turns out. And we find that Saul goes there and he, he says everything's going to work out fine. I'm going to go. She's going to bring up Samuel. Samuel's going to give me a word. I'm going to know what to do. And no one will be the wise. But that's not what happens. There's always surprises to the rebellious heart. Notice what the surprises were. Number one, there was a startling figure. Now, I think I can at least give you an opinion, if not a definitive answer, as to what happens in these two verses. Verse 11, Then said the woman, Who shall I bring up to thee? And he said, Bring me up Samuel. And when the woman saw Samuel, she cried with a loud voice. And the woman spake to Saul, saying, Why hast thou deceived me? For thou art Saul. Now, there's a few questions it would be natural to answer. One, why was she startled? What surprised her about this exchange? I mean, after all, listen, this woman, uh, she makes her bread and butter by conjuring up devils or demons or spirits or whatever. Why was she so surprised by what happened here? And how did she know that it was Saul as a result of it? I'll tell you what I believe, and you're, you're at liberty to disagree with this. I don't know whether it was merely a matter of illusion and deception what she did, or rather that she was tapping into darkness and occultism. But I do know that what happened in this moment was markedly different from her experience under normal circumstances. She was used to getting up and burning her, her uh, incense and saying her chants and doing whatever she does. And then all of a sudden, some event, some phenomenon would take place. But Saul says, bring me up Samuel. And all of a sudden, in her heart and in her mind, she sees an old man in a mantle coming up. And here's what she realizes. She wasn't the one that did it. And it scares her. She realizes she's dealing with a power she ain't never dealt with before. She realizes, let me say it this way, she realized she wasn't in control. Hey, listen, Saul thought he was the master of his own faith. Every person living in rebellion does. I do when I'm rebellious. You do when you're rebellious. He thought he had taken control of the situation. But instead, he was shown who is actually in control of his days and his life. The, the, the great deception that rebellion produces in our heart is we think we're in control. That's what rebellion is. I'm going to take control. I'm going to do it my way. But he learns you can say that. Listen, you can proclaim yourself master of the universe, but that don't make you master of the universe. You can claim that you're taking fate into your own hands and determining your own destiny. But there is only one God that reigns supreme over all things. And like it or not, we're still in his control. The devil come along and say, don't you want to run your own life? Can I tell you what that lying scoundrel ain't telling you? Nobody runs their own life. The Bible does not say you cannot, that, that you can serve no masters. It says you cannot serve two masters. 
You can only serve one master. Uh, Serving no masters is not on the table. You can wish it was. You can regret it's not. You can begrudge God for that truth. But all of us serve a master. It's either the Lord or it's the flesh and the devil. One of the two. And the question is not, are we going to run our own lives? Uh, We're not going to run our own lives. The question is, are we going to give control to the one that loves us? And died for us. I see he was surprised because there was a startling figure. Number two, he was surprised because there was a sight familiar. Verse number 13, the king said unto her, be not afraid. Isn't that funny for him to say? I mean, what does he know? You know, but he, what, be not afraid for what saw us thou? And the woman said unto Saul, I saw gods ascending out of the earth. I don't know everything that that means. She says gods plural. And she's using pagan language. She don't know how to say, I see a disembodied spirit of an Old Testament saint or whatever it is that it might be that she saw. She's using pagan language and she calls them gods. I don't understand everything about it. I understand that there's multiple. And we we could try to make an application and maybe we will here in a moment. But she says, I, I, I see gods ascending out of the earth. And he said unto her, what form is he of? And she said, an old man cometh up and he is covered with a mantle. And Saul perceived that it was Samuel. And he stooped with his face to the ground and bowed himself. This is one of the biggest questions I have about this passage. But I think maybe I've got at least an application, if not an answer. Uh, why did Saul look, or Samuel look the way he did? I don't know what heaven looks like to you. But I hope that when I die and when I am released from the prison of this tabernacle, I sure enough hope I don't still look the way I do now. I'm just going to say, I, I, I mean, I'm not a complainer. But if I get to heaven and still look like this, me and God are going to have to have some conversations. I was misled. I, and maybe I'm not saying it was His fault. I'm just saying I have serious hopes that a lot of what is so broke down here is going to be fixed up there. But the Bible says that when Samuel appears, he looks like Samuel. Do we really believe that a disembodied spirit of a saved person that at this moment would have gone to paradise would bear all of the same appearance as the person in their natural life. And particularly, even if there was a similarity in their, in their look, in, in, in their, in their countenance, why would we believe they'd still be an old man? Why would they believe they'd still be stooped the way that Samuel was? Here's what I believe, and you're, you're free and at liberty to disagree with me about this. I don't believe that's what Samuel normally looks like. I, I don't even know how to articulate all of my opinions about what I think the spirit world is and looks like. But I think in that moment, God, uh, produced and portrayed Samuel in that way. You know why? So Saul would recognize him. Let me just read this to you. I think he'll say it better than I have. I I pieced my thoughts together. Saul was looking for some new and alternate way of divining the future. How had he learned the will and mind of God for all those years? He'd go down to the prophet of God. prophet of God would take the Word of God, would speak it to his life, and that's how he'd find out what the right thing was. Now he's hoping for some new thing. Some way he can do an end around around God. Some way that he can detour around God's authority. But you know what he learns? He learns that the Word of God appears in the same way and says the same thing that it always has. He was hoping for some new sensation. Instead, he finds the old prophet with the mantle on his shoulder. And he finds out, hey, nothing's changed, Saul. Samuel's going to say the same thing he's always said. It don't matter if you come and try to conjure him up. He's going to be the same. Listen, I got news for you. You can keep going back to this book. 
But as long as it stays a King James Bible, it's going to keep saying what it's always said. You can be upset that it says what it says. You can disagree with what it says. Uh, but as long, and I believe forever, hey, listen, God will preserve His Word. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my Word shall not pass away. You can go and look for some slick new thing, but every time you pick up this King James Bible, you're going to see an old man stooped over with a mantle over his shoulder. This Bible ain't going to change. And the prophet had not changed. He sees a sight familiar. And then look at verse 15. Samuel said to Saul, Why hast thou disquieted me to bring me up? And Saul answered, I am sore distressed. For the Philistines make war against me, and God is departed from me and answereth me no more, neither by prophets nor by dreams. Therefore have I called thee, that thou mayest make known unto me what I shall do. Boy, that's beautiful. I mean, I, it's, I, I know, I know the, uh, the academy don't read the Bible, but if they did, this would be an Oscar moment. Oh, you just don't understand, Samuel. I'm so troubled. I just want to know the mind of God. And I've asked God and God won't tell me. And why is everything so hard on me? Samuel said to him, Wherefore then dost thou ask of me? Seeing the Lord has departed from thee and is become thine enemy. What do you want me to say, Saul? If God has cast you off, what do you expect me to do? He looks at him and I would say this. We see a startling figure, a sight familiar, but then we learn a sobering fact. He was showing up to say, well, God ain't doing what I want, Samuel, so I showed up so you would do what I want. Samuel looks at him and says, uh, sounds like a you problem, Saul. Sounds like a you and God issue. And it sounds like you need to go talk to God about this issue and not bring me up and try to get me to say something different. Oh boy, there's a lot we could say. There's a lot we could say. Let me just make this statement in passing. I, suffer me this liberty just for a moment. We need to quit trying to read this book to get it to say what we want it to say. We need to quit, we need to quit trying to twist this book to get it to say what we want it to say. Uh, we need to quit trying to uh, buy teachers and commentaries and various perspectives to try to get it to say what we want it to say. And we ought to just read this Bible and believe it. We ought to just read it and believe it. But let me go a step further and say this. The rebellious feels as though they have figured out some alternate route around dealing with God. That's what their rebellion is. They're saying, well, I'm not going to do it God's way. I'll do it my way, and I won't have to deal with God. Samuel shows up and says, I'm sorry to disappoint you, Saul, but we're all going to have to deal with God, you included. You know, the Bible says this, that at the name of Jesus, every knee. That's Saul's knee. Re reach down, smack a hand on your knee, not on your neighbor's knee. I don't want no, I don't want no lawsuits, but on your knee. Each of your, those knees are going to one day bow before God. I'll never bow. Yes, you will. I'll never confess. Yeah, because it says uh, every tongue should confess. You say, I'll never agree with God. Yeah, you will. You'll confess one day that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Our flesh and our rebellion wants us to believe we have figured out a way to cut God out of the middle of this thing and to do our own thing. But the sobering fact is this. You can avoid Him now, but you can't avoid Him forever. And I would say this. There's a lot more on the other side of forever than there is on this side of it. You may avoid Him for the next 10 years, 15, 20, 30, 40. I hope you live 200 years. And if you do, you may avoid Him all that time. But you're going to step two seconds outside of this life and into the next, and you're going to come face to face with Him. The Bible says we're to prepare to meet our God. Because like it or not, hey, it's appointed unto man wants to die. You find me one that hasn't died. You find me one that has escaped death. I can tell you of, of, of one, and he's the one you're getting ready to have to go meet. 
Everybody else has had to suffer under death's cruel authority. So uh, sooner or later, you're going to have to meet with them. I, I would say this. We see the surprise to the rebellious. And then finally, we see the sentence upon the rebellious. I don't have much time. I'm not going to preach this, but I just want to mention it to you. Verse 16. Let's look at it again. Then said Samuel, Wherefore then dost thou ask of me, seeing the Lord is departed from thee and is become thine enemy? So what is it that God ultimately, through Samuel, says to Saul? What is it ultimately when God says, all right, you've gotten my attention, Saul. Here we are. I'm going to speak through Samuel. What does God finally say to him? Let me say number one, we see there's a word of divine opposition. Man, that's strong language Samuel uses. He says, God is become thine enemy. Strong language. This is a man that once spoke with the spirit of, of prophecy. This is a man that once had the favor of God. And now, the Word of God says, God is your enemy. Say, preacher, that's awful. That could never happen to me. You, you might say, well, 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 preacher, aren't you thankful for this day of grace? Can't happen in this day of grace. I beg to differ. We associate an enemy with malice. And that's part of just the politically charged environment we live in today. It's not enough to disagree with someone. You have to hate their guts and want them destroyed. That's the world we live in today. But you know, all throughout history, most people that were enemies had no personal malice towards each other. If you were to go back, I, Brother Taylor could could uh, could share some of the Civil War history and talk about the uh, unique moments during the Civil War when during holidays or during certain uh, times when fighting was unfeasible, when both sides would uh, congenially fellowship with each other and would trade and barter and market with each other because they didn't hate each other. They were just on two sides of an issue. That's what made them enemies. Listen to what the Bible says. Moses speaking to the prophets in the Old Testament. The Lord speaking to the prophets or to the priests in the Old Testament. Leviticus chapter 26. Listen to what God says, verse 27. He says, If you will not for all this hearken unto me, but walk contrary unto me. That's what rebellion is. God wants me to go this way, but I'm going to go that way. God wants me to go His way, but I'm going to go my way. Listen to what God says. Then I will walk contrary unto you. And fury... And I, even I, will chastise you seven times for your sins. Here's what God says. In the book of James, He says, Draw an eye unto me and I'll draw an eye unto you. Can we flip that around and recognize that if we say I'm going to walk contrary to God, God says, well, guess what, pal? I'm going to walk contrary to you. You say, that's Old Testament, preacher. Well, maybe the New Testament says something about it. Maybe James 4, 4 says this, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, Know ye not that friendship to the world is enmity with God. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. That is as New Testament as it gets. Will be the enemy of God. Peter says it in different language in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5. He says, God resisteth the proud. In other words, here's what's going to happen. God will weaponize all the power at His disposal to sabotage the areas of your life that are propping up the hypocrisy and facade of your rebellion. He doesn't do that because He hates you. He does that because He loves you. And if He was to permit you to go through life flourishing and blossoming and blooming and thriving through sin, all that would do would be endorse your iniquity. A lost man can do that, but a saved man can't. You're a child of God. You're not your own. You're bought with a price. God says you walk contrary to me. I'm going to walk contrary to you. You know why? Because... Whether or not we feel like our direction is the right direction, it's still the wrong direction. We may say, why, listen, why is God walking contrary to me? He could say the same thing to you. He could say the same thing to you. Hey, listen, I, I believe everything America does is better. I do. 
I don't, I don't like the metric system. I don't care if you do or not. I don't like it. I like the imperial system. I prefer that. I think it's right. I think it's appropriate. I don't want to throw away my tape measures. All right? I think that's right. I think it is appropriate the way that we do things, the word we use for things and stuff. And let me just say this. I don't care how the rest of the world drives. I think we drive on the correct side of the road. Study it out. It's what makes sense. The majority of your turns are right turns. So shouldn't you be on the right side of the road? I mean, listen, I don't want to get bogged down in the weeds. i got a message to preach. But I'd say this. Somebody would say, but preacher, everybody else is going the other way. That don't make it the right way. But preacher, everybody else is driving on the other side of the road. Yeah, the wrong side. You say, but preacher, well, why is it? I mean, everybody's walking this way. Why would God want me to walk the other way? Yeah, everybody's walking the wrong way. And everybody may gather together and say, we love this way. We think it's the right way. We appreciate this way. We value this way. Everybody agrees this is the right way. But guess who decides which is the right way? It ain't the majority. Hey, listen, it's not the crowd. It's the Creator. That decides what the right way is. He says, I will walk contrary to you. I see a word of divine opposition. Number two, I see a witness of foretold condemnation. He says in verse number 17, The Lord hath done to him as he spake by me. For the Lord hath rent the kingdom out of thine hand and given it to thy neighbor, even to David, because thou obeyest not the voice of the Lord, nor executest his fierce wrath upon Amalek. Therefore hath the Lord done this thing unto thee this day. I'm not going to say a lot except to say that God says, I've already told you what was wrong, Saul. And you are expected to get what was wrong right. This should not surprise you. You had the information before you made this decision. He says, Saul, you want things to be right? Go back and do right where you did wrong. There's a lot. Listen, I understand. We talk about things being put under the blood and under grace. And I praise God for it. I'm glad I don't have to try to go back and atone for every sin that I've ever done. For surely I would fail. But I think sometimes in that mentality... We have disregarded the importance of confessing and repenting of known sin irrespective of how far in our past it is. If there's something that God said, this is what I expect out of you, then we need to get that thing right. You say, preacher, it's years ago. Uh, yeah, a, a day is as a thousand years with God and a thousand years is as a day. Uh, God is still waiting on us to get that thing right. We see a foretold condemnation and finally, and I'm done, we see a warning of impending destruction. Verse 19, Moreover, the Lord will also deliver Israel with thee into the hand of the Philistines and tomorrow, 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 not, not Sunday, tomorrow, he says, shalt thou and thy sons be with me. I would say this, uh, we always think that, uh, you know, we're going to reap this harvest of disobedience many years from now. But we have no guarantee of that. You say, oh, preacher, I, listen, I know one of these days I'll get right with God and I'll do right. And, you know, even if I don't, I mean, that's years down the road. Maybe not. Saul was, comparatively speaking, a young man at this moment. Certainly not. He didn't die of natural causes, right? Not unless you consider the Philistines falling upon him and him falling on his sword, natural causes. All right? I think that qualifies as COVID. Somebody say amen. But... <laughs> <laughs> I'll take a joke. It's a joke. It's a joke. It's all right to laugh. I, I would say this, that uh, you say, well, preacher, it'll be many, many years from now. No, you don't know that. You don't know that. Uh, the truth is, your rebellion could devastate your life tomorrow. We don't need to take for granted. The Bible says we're not to boast ourselves against tomorrow. That it is wickedness to boast ourselves against tomorrow. You know why? Because it presumes that we are God and that we know what tomorrow may bring forth. You don't know what tomorrow may bring forth, so you better get it right today 
before it's too late. Let's bow together this morning as a musician comes to play. The altar's open. You know that. You know you don't have to wait for a note to be played or anything. Uh, in fact, I'd advise you, if God's already dealt with your heart, don't wait, because that just gives the flesh an opportunity to cower away. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. Lord, we love you. We ask it in Jesus' name.